Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to the May 2018 edition of Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and with me is Sue Nelson. And this time we've come to Milton Keynes in central England to discuss asteroids, possibly hitting the Earth, maybe not. And some might say that uh, there's no better place to look ahead to the end of the world than Milton Keynes. Also, we'll meet the Romanian cosmonaut who flew to the first international space station and's confident that countries will continue to work together in space. And as Europe's Bepi Colombo mission to Mercury arrives in French Guiana, ready for launch, we chat to the project scientist who cannot wait. For me, I'm working since 14 years now on this mission and finally we are at that stage where we could launch a spacecraft. Now, the Open University in Milton Keynes has a a pretty fantastic record, actually, when it comes to high-profile missions in recent years. The first man-made object to touch the surface of Titan was made in Milton Keynes for the Cassini-Huygens mission. And a team from the OU led one of the instruments on the Philae lander. That's the European Rosetta mission, which... uh, famously landed on Comet 67P. But our guest, it's fair to say, is mostly interested in asteroids. It's Professor Simon Green, Head of Planetary Space Sciences here. And you've even discovered an asteroid called, not not exactly the most sort of um, catchy of names, 3200 Phaethon. And I say it sounds like I'm lisping, but it's P-H-A-E-T-H-O-N, Phaethon. I think before you describe how you found it, why did you name it Python? Well, this was, as, it, as you'll discover, is quite an interesting object. And so we have to follow International Astronomical Union naming conventions. And for well-known objects, we have to choose classical names. And I'll explain why this particular name was relevant to this asteroid when I tell you about its properties. Well, tell me about its properties now, because I have seen that in some uh, cases this asteroid is referred to as a rocky comet and, or a hybrid So is it an asteroid or not? I would say it's an asteroid, um, but the boundaries between asteroids and comets are now very blurred. The reason why we named it Phython was because when we discovered it, it came very close to the Earth, and it was at the time the object which went closest to the sun as well. And Phython was the son of Helios, the sun god, who borrowed his father's chariot to drive around the sun and crashed it. 
I, you see, I'd never, and I like uh, mythology, and I'd not, not heard of that one. So this uh, object I discovered actually during, when I was doing my PhD, I was very fortunate to get involved in the IRAS project, which was an infrared space telescope scanning the sky, looking for celestial objects, and so asteroids and other bits of space junk were just noise and were rejected from the uh, survey as, as the satellite scanned the sky over and over again. It only recorded objects which remained fixed. Asteroids move and therefore they were ejected and thrown in the waste bin and I rubbished around, rummaged around in the waste bin to look for moving objects and identify them and then go to telescopes around the world to try and detect them. And this was the most famous uh, object that, that came out of that programme. You said it came close to Earth. How close to <laughs> Earth? Um, in terms of uh, danger to Earth, very distant. In terms of, of asteroids, it, it's one of the objects that's classified as a near-Earth object. So it, it crosses the Earth's orbit. But there's absolutely no danger at all of this object hitting the Earth. Where is it at the moment? Somewhere in the solar system. (laughs) Uh, It has an eccentric orbit which takes it very close to the sun inside the orbit of Mercury um, and it goes out towards the asteroid belt. Uh, Where exactly it is now, I'm not sure, because most of the time it's not observable. It's very small and you only see it generally when it comes near the Earth. So it's pinging out sort of out towards Mars, Jupiter and then coming right back towards the Earth. That's right. And what makes this object particularly interesting is at the time of discovery it was um, identified to have the same orbit as the... Geminid meteor stream, most prominent meteors we see uh, every year in December. So that would make you think it's a comet. But the physical properties it had, there was no activity, no no coma, no tail, nothing to make it you think that it was active at all, except the fact it was associated with a meteor stream, which is typically uh, 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 associated with comets. Um, but more recently, a solar observatory looking at the sun detected Phython as it passed close to the sun in the direction of the sky, and it was brighter than it should have been. And the inference is that it was actually producing material evaporating off the surface, but not ice, as in comets, but actually something at much higher temperatures. It reached over 1,000 degrees near the surface. And so you have evaporating rocks, essentially, coming off. That's the idea. Now, whether... That has anything to do with the Gemini meteor stream is questionable because the amount of material is far too small. Um, but it certainly is um, what we would call a, a rocky comet, if it's you like. It's certainly something interesting, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. And there are uh, plans for a Japanese mission to fly by the asteroid at the end of its Your uh, mission. Yes, <laughs> which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, um, it, it's actually a space mission to look at, at uh, interstellar and interplanetary dust. It has dust detectors, the dust telescope collecting dust particles uh, as it flies through the solar system. And as a sort of grand finale, it's going to fly past this asteroid. That's the plan. I really hope the mission's approved. Oh, my goodness. And what, what, what's that mission called? Destiny Plus. Oh, I even I like the name as well. That, that's pretty cool. Now, the, the Open University is currently involved in two asteroid missions at the moment. There's a NASA one, OSIRIS-REx, and there's a Japanese one, Hayabusa 2. So exactly what are you doing for each one? For OSIRIS-REx, we actually have one of our uh, research fellows is um, a co-investigator on the infrared camera, uh, a spectrometer, and that is going to image the object and tell us about the physical properties of the surface. So it can tell you the particle sizes on the surface 
It can also determine the mineralogical composition as well. So this is providing context for what is the primary objective of the mission, which is to bring back a sample uh, to the Earth. Now, people might say, why do we need to do that when we've got 30,000... Why do you need to do that? (laughs) 30,000 meteorites in our collections around the world, which mostly, well, all probably come from uh, asteroids. The answer to that is they are selected by the Earth's atmosphere. So... The only the most robust objects survive to the ground and allow us to pick them up. And it appears that the most primitive materials in the solar system, those that date back right back to its formation, will be very fragile. And they're the very ones that we won't have in our, our collection. And certainly the properties of the meteorites we have, which tells a great deal about the evolution of the solar system, uh, indicate that the, the missing bits are the really most exciting so ones. So that's why you have to go to them, because they can't reach us. That's right. So you, you choose an asteroid that you think has the, the most uh, primitive materials. And those, that's what our group is really looking forward to, because we have extensive laboratories for studying extraterrestrial materials. I mean, I think the whole idea of sample return is so awesome that you can go to something, take a little bit of it and bring it back to Earth. I saw with the OSIRIS-REx the original concept model at Lockheed quite a while ago, and they produced this lovely 3D printed spacecraft, but they couldn't work out the arm, so it's Lego. They use, a, they use a Lego arm on it. I'm assuming the real thing has not got a Lego arm on uh, it. No, it hasn't. The arm... Which is quite disappointing. Yeah, it's, it's, it, looks, it looks quite strange, actually. It looks very, very spindly. But, of course, in space, you don't need to support uh, the weight of your sampling mechanism. But it's a, a, a long, thin arm with a joint in the middle which opens up from the spacecraft. And it uses what's called touch-and-go process. So you don't actually land on the asteroid at all. Uh, you come down with the uh, sampling mechanism at the end of the arm, essentially crash into the asteroid at very, very low speed, and springs in the arm decelerate the spacecraft. It does its sampling in five seconds and then lifts off again. And this means that you don't have to carry landing gear and try... In fact, the problem on small asteroids, this is only 500 metres across, uh, is not landing... It's staying on it, as we well know from the Philae lander, which bounced when it landed on actually quite a lot larger object. Um, so this removes that, that difficulty. You select your landing site and you just touch down, take a quick sample and go again. And both. That still seems quite risky. What if they misjudge the landing slightly and, and it's bound to be an uneven surface and tilts slightly and you don't quite gets to the surface do you have a a capability to try again if you don't do it right first time or is it a one-shot mission both missions have a capability of trying several times but they're limited by the fuel that they carry to decelerate them when they get near the surface and come off again they don't want to use a normal uh, rocket booster because the chemicals in that will contaminate the surface so they're using uh, nitrogen gas to do that and there's a limited supply and each time you try and do the maneuver it's a higher risk so you don't want to do it too many times but the answer is yes, you, you could crash. And so what you want to be absolutely certain about before you get near the surface is to know exactly what it is that you're expecting, what the local slopes are, whether there's big boulders around. And in fact, on OSIRIS-REx, the uh, solar arrays actually tilt at an angle when, they come, when it comes down to land at the surface. 
so that if there's any dust thrown up from the process and their their collector uses like a, a reverse vacuum cleaner to agitate the surface and throw up pebbles into the collector. So they don't want dust to collect on the solar arrays and reduce their efficiency, so they tilt them out of the way so that the dust will slide off. Um, so there's lots of things to think about, but there's why both missions have a long uh, observa- observational phase first taking images and mapping and that's not just to provide the context for where the sample's collected and pick the landing site for scientific reasons, it's also to pick the landing site for safety reasons, to be in a smooth area with a relatively low local slope and small particles. And what about bringing it back to Earth? So you have some sort of container and it comes back in at a tremendous speed into the Earth's atmosphere how do you catch it? Because that's not we've not always got a great track record on that. I remember, in fact, Colin Pillinger, uh, the great Colin Pillinger at, at the university, saying, oh, you may remember me from the failed mission to Mars <laughs> or the failed sample return mission. Yeah. The, um, in fact, as it turns out, um, it appears that, that we now know the Beagle didn't actually crash. Mm, Nobody knew that because there were yeah. no camera and no telemetry. Yeah. Um, but the imaging, it appears to be that just the, the last flap mm. of the uh, deployment mechanism didn't open, which is such a terrible shame. But in terms of, of arrival at the Earth, if you want to decelerate your spacecraft to match the Earth's orbital speed, that means you have to take a lot of fuel with you, and that means a lot more fuel at launch, and it makes the mission very expensive. So what all these missions do, Hayabusa uh, has already done it, a Stardust mission, a Genesis mission, and these two taking the same process that they fly in on their interplanetary uh, trajectory. The probe is released from the main spacecraft and directly enters the Earth's atmosphere at a speed of 12 or 13 kilometres per second and is decelerated by friction in the Earth's atmosphere, just like a, a, a meteor coming down. And when the speed is sufficiently low, then a parachute opens in this case and they come down on a parachute. Not all missions have done that. Um, we were involved in Genesis mission, had an experiment on it, which was to measure the solar particles coming from the sun. And the idea there was that they would have a parachute which would release close to the ground and they would catch it with a helicopter. Unfortunately, they didn't. Um, and it was... Oops. <laughs> yes. And it turned out it was just a simple component that was in the wrong way round. And so the parachute was never instructed to open because the right conditions didn't occur. This was exactly the same system that was going to be used for the Stardust mission, bringing comet dust samples back. And so people were very worried whether this had been put in the right way. 50-50 chance. Fortunately, it was the right way and it worked. And that one landed softly. When it comes to analysing and looking more closely at the the components and what an asteroid is made of, is this as much as knowing how to deflect a potential asteroid that's on a collision course with Earth, or is it more about your your higher scientific aims of, you know, the origins of the universe, where asteroids play a role, etc., etc.? These two missions, Cyrus-Rex and Hayabusa 2, are absolutely science missions. So their objectives are to go to objects that we think are very primitive and to bring back samples of material that has not been unaltered but relatively unaltered since the formation of the solar system. And so its objectives are to probe back to conditions when the planets formed and try and understand those processes. However, it turns out that the target for uh, Cyrus-Rex, the asteroid Bennu, 
has a one in about 3,700 chance of hitting the Earth in 2170. So these asteroids, uh, some of them, have the potential for hitting the Earth in the future. Now, it, it turns out that, that there are no large objects that we know are on collision course imminently, but we are concerned about the very large number of objects that are not discovered yet in the 100 to 500 metre size range. This is at the top end of that range, so potentially extremely damaging if it hits. And it would be crazy of us in a society where we were capable of stopping one of these hitting if we knew one was going to and didn't do anything about it. Now, that introduces a whole different kind of mission, which is primary objective is to deflect an asteroid. It just so happens that, for, as a scientist, the things that we need to know in order to most efficiently deflect an object are very similar to the things that we need to know to study these objects scientifically. So even if you have a mission dedicated to deflecting an asteroid, you can get interesting science out of it. That is exactly what is going to happen in the near future, we hope, with the DART mission, as NASA mission, which is going to impact an asteroid with a spacecraft and deflect the asteroid. Now, you have to be careful here, don't you? Because you don't want to deflect an asteroid and think, yay, we've done it, and then suddenly look that actually you've just deflected it to a different part of the planet or our moon or something like that. Or even worse, hit something that wasn't going to hit you and cause it to hit you. Um, Now, in this case, that is why uh, DART is, is so nicely defined because it's going to a binary asteroid. So this is an asteroid with a moon. Uh, The main asteroid is around uh, 800 metres in diameter and the moon is about 160 metres in diameter, orbiting very close with a period of 12 hours. And this object called Didymos will be impacted in 2022, if all goes to plan, when the asteroid is quite close to the Earth and can be observed with ground-based telescopes. And what in fact happens is that the moon itself passes in front of and behind the main asteroid and produces a small dip in brightness, which you can measure from the ground. From the timing of those eclipses, you can work out the orbital period of the moon, and the idea is DART will hit the moon and change the orbital period. So it won't change the orbit in relation to the sun and the Earth, it will change the orbit of the moon around the asteroid itself. But it will allow you to test the process. And I hope that also that Europe will resurrect... What its original idea was, this was to be a joint mission with a European observer spacecraft called AIM, AIM. Yes, which was going to be there to watch the impact. Now, unfortunately, this was a casualty of overspending on the Mars programme in Europe, which was very high priority, and so it wasn't funded. However, there's a new proposal currently on the books. The spacecraft's concept is being developed at the moment, and a decision will be made next year whether to fly or not called HERA, which will go along after the event, we can still resurrect most of the science, which is to measure the mass of the moon, which DART won't do. So when DART hits, you can measure the deflection, but you don't know how the efficiency of that process worked. Because when an impact occurs, you get lots of ejecta flying backwards, and that adds to the effect of the spacecraft hitting. But nobody knows quite what that's going to be. It could be a small amount more. It could be five or even ten times the effect of the spacecraft impact itself. And if we're going to test this process to to be ready when the one that has our name on it might be discovered... We want to know how efficient this process is. And only by going to the asteroid, measuring the mass, looking at the crater properties and then deducing the structure of that object and how it responded, can we then predict how the one that we want to really deflect 
is going to respond to an impactor that we we fly at it. So I'm really hoping that uh, Hera will fly. And of course, as a scientist, those measurements, you know, observing a real impact site, a fresh impact site, means you expose the interior of the asteroid. We measure lots of properties. This will be the smallest asteroid ever visited by a spacecraft, and it will be the first time a binary system has ever been observed in detail. That so fantastic. fantastic science as well. It does, yeah. It sounds really, really good. Uh, Simon Green, thank you. Well, stay with us because we want your comments on uh, something else that's going, and we can mention a bit about Asteroid Day that's coming up uh, in June as well. Well, over the past few weeks, the European Space Agency, ESA, has been shipping out the various sections of the new BepiColombo Mercury mission to the European spaceport in French Guiana, ready for launch in October. BepiColombo is made up of four sections, including a Japanese module, and it's designed to make the most detailed study yet of the closest planet to the sun. The whole spacecraft is almost three stories high. It's taken four flights in a giant Antonov cargo plane just to get it to the launch site. Uh, not to mention 70 sea containers as well, actually. Yeah, and just before it was shipped off, I visited the clean room at Eztec in the Netherlands where engineers were packing the Mercury Planetary Orbiter module away for its journey, or at least the first stage of its journey. In the viewing gallery above the clean room, as we watch technicians dressed in white overalls and masks make their final adjustments, I asked Bepi Colombo project scientist Johannes Benkoff what happens next. When we arrive uh, in Kourou, we have to see if everything survived the transport and we have to do a lot of checkups, but then also we do the final assembly and the fueling of the spacecraft, bring it all together. And since we have to do it piece by piece, unit after unit, we cannot do it in parallel. The whole campaign takes about six months. But after six months, we are ready then to launch a spacecraft, and that will happen in the October-November time frame. This is the culmination of a long project. What has it been like for you? Oh, for, for me, I'm working since 14 years now on this mission, and finally we are at that stage where we could launch a spacecraft. And from the launch on, you can then count when we arrive. Unfortunately, it takes seven and a half years to go there. But nevertheless, now we can calculate that we will be there in 26 and can start our science. And therefore, it's a very exciting moment. Of course, there's some risk behind it, as, as always. But it's really exciting, and I'm really happy that we're now at this stage of the mission. Uh, in terms of the, the science, it's going to be a very harsh working environment when you, when you finally get there, the closest planet to the sun, but a, a planet of extremes. That's indeed correct. Uh, Mercury is a planet of extremes because it's so close to the sun. We have hot temperatures, 450 degrees on the sunlit side, like on Earth on a pizza oven, so really hot. But on the other hand, there is water ice on Mercury. Uh, the NASA messenger mission has found in the craters uh, which don't see the sunlight that there's water ice and we need to follow up that. Then Mercury is a very small planet on one hand but also one of the densest planets and therefore it has a big inner core and that is also part of our studies. Mercury has an Earth-like magnetic field where we would like to know how this is generated and how this field interacts with the solar wind. There we can learn something for our Earth and how our Earth's magnetic field acts with the solar wind. And it's maybe also important for satellites, which we have around Earth, to protect them better when we uh, get new insights and interaction. By studying Mercury, this extreme planet close to the sun, you can actually learn something about Earth. 
Yeah, there are some ideas if we could use Mercury uh, in order to predict the weather on Earth because uh, some events will happen on Mercury because it's closer to the sun earlier than than on Earth. So if you see something on Mercury, you can make warnings for Earth, for example. And that is one aspect uh, among others. So this is space weather, where you can, the, the activity from the sun. Yeah, space weather is, is one thing which we can study on Mercury. But of course, there are many other things. Mercury is a perfect laboratory for general relativity because Mercury's orbit is affected. You cannot explain it only by Newton mechanics. You need to take general relativity into account. And so if you have a spacecraft around Mercury and can measure the effects on the orbit, you can actually also study relativistic effects and prove the theory of general relativity. So uh, Mercury is a real fascinating object. And one of the discoveries by Mercury is also a feature called hollows. There are bright features which we found in some of the craters. And these features seem to change or indicate some activity which is quite recent, some outgassing or so. So there, there are a lot of things. Mercury has volcanism in the past. It's a real fascinating target for us. You sound pretty excited about finally getting to get this spacecraft in, in space. And OK, seven and a half years to get there, but you will eventually get there. Yeah, and, and that's a, big, uh, a great thing at the moment. We are ready. We had so many hiccups in the past where we showed some delays because some techniques uh, were not as good as we thought they are. And now we are ready. We had gotten the permission to ship our spacecraft to Kourou, and that's really exciting. Johannes Benkoff, project scientist for Bepi Colombo. And we've got some video of the operation to transport Bepi. We'll put that on our assorted social media feeds. I've, I've stopped saying Facebook, Twitter yeah, and Instagram now. <laughs> um, and I'll put a link to the feature I wrote on the mission for Space UK magazine. Uh, we'll also post pictures of our recording today. It, it really is the least exciting room we've ever recorded the podcast in. And uh, we'll also put anything else up that uh, catches our attention. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, wherever, or our email, which is info at boffinmedia.co.uk. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> okay. Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> the Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people? sharks or selfies to subscribe search naked scientist podcast or head over to our website if you've been following us on social media you'll have noticed sue has spent a good amount of the last year traveling around the u.s and europe with the inimitable wally funk the word inimitable was invented for wally funk now partly this has been for various bbc radio shows uh, but also a book and I just want to say it's now available to pre-order. It's quite a way off, though, isn't it? That's right. It doesn't come out until October, mid-October, October the 15th. If you don't know Wally, you'll soon find out. She's one of the Mercury 13 women who passed the uh, physical astronaut tests in 1960 to 61. And she's coming over to the UK for the book launch. Um, so Wally Funk's Race for Space. Yep. 
get on that to Amazon and pre-order now. And uh, we'll look forward, hopefully, to having her on the podcast in either October or, or November. She's been on the podcast before, but she's quite a character. She hasn't actually seen the book yet, though, had she? She wanted it to be a surprise. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Another space legend now, Romanian cosmonaut Dimitru Doran Prunario, who flew to the Salyut 6 space station in 1981. Now, he later became the secretary of the Romanian Space Agency, ambassador to Russia and chair of the Scientific and Technical Subcommittee of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Exploration of Outer Space. When I met up with him in the Netherlands recently, I asked him how Salyut 6 compared to the International Space Station. Salyut 6 was the first International Space Station, I mean, with international crew on board. The fact that the space station was considered big at that time, looking now back to, let's say, Mir space station and the International Space Station, it looks like a small module of these space stations. When I float from the spacecraft to the space station. I've seen inside a huge space. Huge space means about 15 meters length and four meters in, is the external diameter of the space station. But uh, when I turn around, I've seen that I just have place to just to float a little bit uh, between a lot of equipment uh, and uh, scientific equipment mainly. So it's really just one one tube, but it was made yeah, up of several it's, modules. It's, yes, yes, it was only one tube, one tube. Okay, it was considered with three modules inside, but it was actually one tube. And in the middle, one big telescope, radio telescope, that, that was used for different uh, scientific missions. I spent eight days on board Salyut 6. Uh, eight days, in the beginning, it looks to me to be very long, and after half of the period, uh, so the end of my mission just approached, and I considered that I have a very, very few time, and in the last days, I really wanted to stay longer, but it finished. Uh, and the importance of those Soyuz missions was that, really, we wouldn't have the International Space Station today if it hadn't been for all that work that the Soviet Union did and the other countries like Romania did in making all that possible, understanding what it's like to live in space. Because even eight days is quite an achievement at that point. That's right. The Americans were focused on the moon and then on the space shuttle. The Russians were focused on the space stations. From Salyut 1 to Salyut 6, 7 and then Mir, they got a tremendous experience in uh, building space stations, in managing the space station, in uh, solving a lot of problems that could appear inside the space station when a crew is on board. This tremendous experience was applied uh, at the International Space Station. Now, you flew as part of the the Intercosmos group, and that was the idea to pull in the the various countries affiliated with the the Soviet Union. And I suppose now that it's the same idea where you pull in internationally all the countries. But, I mean, there was a political element to that, wasn't it? It was to try and keep Romania close to Russia, keep the Czech Republic close to Russia. I mean, there was a Syrian, for example, cosmonaut at one point. an Afghan, a Mongolian, a Cuban one. Of course, a Mongolian, yeah. Yes, that's right, that's right. Um, Actually, you know, during the Cold War, uh, uh, the socialist system uh, considered that they have to push the science and technology to overpass the the capitalism. And uh, from the Western part, they thought in the same way against the, the Eastern Bloc. So uh, now uh, we really have a uh, really wide cooperation between all countries. But in that time, in the Intercosmos program, uh, we were 
focused on developing space sciences in our countries, in Eastern European countries. And with the help of the Russians at that time, launching for free our equipment, uh, our experiments, and then launching uh, cosmonauts from our countries, we really developed some institutions that uh, were very well appreciated in that time. We form a lot of specialists that were very appreciated after 90 when they emigrated to Western countries. <laughs> some of them, some of them, all of them. Some, some of the institutions are working today uh, by different projects with ESA, and they are very well appreciated. We have an agreement with NASA as well. It was signed in 2000, and also we have some uh, very good cooperations with other space agencies in the world. Are you optimistic that these nations, not just the European nations, but Russia and the US can hold together in this in this coalition working together in space or maybe pull in China as well I'm thinking all the work you've done with the United Nations would try to yeah. keep countries together in space rather than uh, the, the narrative of this another space race concerning the minute space flights uh, the US and uh, Russia they have a very good cooperation for now the Americans fly Soyuz spacecrafts and they fly together to the International Space Station and they really manage very well this activity. China comes very fast uh, to the big group of the countries managing a space station. And in 2022, they will have a complete space station on orbit around the Earth, and they invite uh, cooperation countries to take part uh, in making experiments on board of the space station. Not to take part in the development, in the construction, but just to use it by uh, mutual agreements. And what China did, they signed an agreement with the UN Office on, uh, for Outer Space Affairs to find developing countries that went to do experiments on board the Chinese space station in the future and to promote their experiments. Okay, it's one type of approach to this problem. I'm quite sure the Russians and the Americans uh, just realized how expensive is the space and the only way to manage it and to do big things is cooperation. Okay, we don't speak now about the military problems. There, each of them, they try to control as much as possible to have more and more information from space for, let's say, national security reasons. Can you ever see a time, I mean, I'm thinking back to Apollo-Soyuz in the, in the mid-70s, you had the Soviet Union and the US. I mean, this is the Soviet Union, not Russia. Yeah. So two sides of the, of the Cold War working together in space. Can you see a situation where you'd have Russia, the US and China working together in space? Because you've got this extraordinary situation where you've got this so-called International Space Station, then you have a Chinese space station. In the American space policy, it's uh, in, in a way forbidden to cooperate with China in these problems because China doesn't have the same rules we have in the Western countries and uh, in the U.S. Uh, about the intellectual protection, about uh, copyrights and so on. It's pretty difficult to work in these conditions and to trust each other from this point of view. But uh, Russia has a good cooperation with China, a lot of Chinese equipment. It's inspired, let's say, inspired by the Russian equipment. A lot of things uh, on the spacecraft, the Chinese spacecraft, they are similar with the Soyuz spacecrafts. I've seen it. I visited the factories there and here. I'm quite sure uh, in the far future, cooperation between the United States, Russia and China could be developed on specific segments of uh, spaceflight. I may tell you a, a thing that it's not anymore a secret. On board of the International Space Station, 
on board of the American laboratory was realized a Chinese experiment in private. I mean, the Nanorex company from the U.S. just determined the Chinese university to make an experiment and they launch it on board the space station. It's a way of developing cooperation at a non-governmental level. But I think it's a beginning. It's a mutual wish to cooperation, just to find the right way to do it in, uh, in the advantage of both sides. So are you reasonably optimistic then that nations will continue to work together in space and you won't have this fragmentation? You know, the danger for our planet coming from the outer space and coming from the ground, it's so big that only the cooperation could save the planet and could save our lives. Think about the asteroids and comets. So it's a continuous danger, and our solar system is characterized by impacts of asteroids on different planets. It's just a matter of time when it could happen on the ground. We have to cooperate, to take measures, and to avoid such things by very developed technology. Also, we have a lot of problems on the ground, and they have to be solved. The climate change, uh, a lot of modifications on the ground, and we have to solve them all together. So the cooperation is the only way to solve these problems. The delightful Romanian cosmonaut, Dimitru Dorin Pronario. A good use of the word inspired, I thought, <laughs> for the, uh, the Chinese space programme uh, from the Russians. Interesting, I thought, Simon, what he was saying about cooperation, particularly when it comes to your area with, with asteroids. That I mean, we talk about the Earth here. Countries are irrelevant. You would say that. Countries are irrelevant in the sense of the, the potential danger to us. But actually, they become highly relevant and politics becomes highly relevant when you start considering how you might deflect a potential asteroid in the future. Every few years, there is an international conference called the Planetary Defense Conference, which is specifically targeted at understanding the entire process of how you might save the Earth from an asteroid impact. And it includes not only scientists, but engineers, people who um, might uh, design the techniques and build the techniques for for doing the deflection, but also civil defence, politicians and space lawyers. For example, imagine a scenario where you have um, a technique to deflect an asteroid, which is a what's called a slow push technique. So this is, for example, something like called a gravity tractor, where you use the gravity of a spacecraft to produce a tiny, tiny pull on the asteroid, which, if acting over many years, can deflect the asteroid enough to, to, for it to miss the Earth. But, of course, that process is gradual. So as if you imagine an asteroid which, if you did nothing, was going to hit a particular country, and in order to deflect it from the Earth, you gradually change its orbit. So the ground track of the asteroid moves Before it leaves the Earth and misses, of course, it tracks across other countries. So what happens if your gravity tractor fails halfway through the mission and you change it from hitting country A to hitting country B? And it just so happened that country A was the one who built the spacecraft. Like America, for instance. And country B (laughs) was um, a political opponent, should we say. China, for instance. (laughs) Yes. So you can imagine the kind of difficulty in in, uh, even those countries agreeing on the technique to use. Um, And this is one of the reasons why using what's called a a fast technique. It's fast only in the sense that the impulse to the asteroid is fast, not that the deflection 
uh, can be done very late. So the, the the movies of the astronauts on on the surface of an asteroid trying to release a bomb with his, with his drills, yeah. Yeah. with a clock timing down yeah, to yeah. the yeah. impact. You know, twelve hours yeah. before it hits the Earth, you deflect the asteroid. No. You have to do it many, many years before. And this is one of the difficulties because the closer you do it in time, the bigger the uh, impulse has to be to deflect the, the object. And isn't this the difficulty as well? Because it's the smaller asteroids are the ones that are the harder to detect until they're closer. So then how do you deflect something that's actually not years away, but months, say? You don't, is the answer. It's, it isn't usually the asteroid it that you discover, the time you discover it, it's close to the Earth. And so if at that particular close approach to the Earth it was going to hit, there would be no time to do anything about it. This has happened once already, that an asteroid has been successfully detected by the ground-based search programmes, predicted to hit the Earth, and it hit. Fortunately, this one was less than 10 metres in size. It was detected only 19 hours before it hit, and it landed, uh, in, hit the atmosphere above Sudan and broke up and some meteorites were collected in the end. And that was scientifically fantastic because we had the first time we had a meteorite directly linked to a specific asteroid that we had observed uh, remotely. Um, but if that were a big asteroid, there would be nothing you could do. But, of course, what happens is you discover the asteroid during a close flyby of the Earth, you get a preliminary orbit, you make a prediction of where it's going to go in the future, and if there's a chance of it hitting the Earth, people keep observing it, improving the precision of the orbit. And if it turned out that there was a future impact, and it was 10 years or more away, then you would have time to prepare and launch a mission. But only if you were ready, because it takes you the time to build the spacecraft the time to get there, and then the time for whatever you've done to act. So if you impact a spacecraft like DART spacecraft on a 200-metre asteroid, it changes its speed by less than one centimetre per second in its orbit. So you can figure out how many seconds you need in order to deflect it the diameter of the Earth and not hit the Earth, and it's, it's years beforehand. So you have to add that on as well. So you really do need to know well in advance of when the impact is going to happen, which is why we have these monitoring programs uh, around the world, dominated by the US uh, in terms of funding, I would have to say, but there are international programs. And there aren't any political boundaries to that because it's discovery and there's there's no political benefit in in uh, knowing which objects are going to hit. And so this is publicised and... and that's fine. When we come to the how we stop it, then it becomes extremely political. So yes, there will be international collaboration, but from as much distrust as trust, I suspect. And for Asteroid Day, it's June 30th. Will it be national or is this an international day now? Asteroid Day is, is I believe, is international. It's certainly European. And so there'll be events going on all around. But it's particularly exciting this year because we have this, these two missions which um, are going to visit asteroids arriving in the summer and giving us our first close-up views of the sorts of objects which, if we are going to ha- have uh, an impact on the Earth in, in the near future, these will be the type of objects that we have to be wary of. And so they're incredibly interesting scientifically, but they're also interesting from a, a planetary defence point of view. Not that we're going to deflect them with these missions, but we'll be able to measure them and understand their properties to help us understand what techniques might work. 
Professor Simon Green, thank you. That's been a fascinating uh, space boffins, actually, particularly concentrating on asteroids. And uh, yeah, thank you. Next month, by the way, we'll be at the UK's National Space Centre in Leicester. It's a little tour of, uh, of the UK. It's quite fun, yeah. isn't it? Um, space boffins is a boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientist. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Uh, do review us on your podcast provider of choice because every review helps boost the number of listeners. Obviously, the bad ones don't do that but we're hoping you say something positive (laughs) if you've listened this far. We've been Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening. We leave you with this. I came across this the other day. It's a short extract of Space Banter from the first Skylab mission in 1973. If you can figure out what they're telling Houston, please let us know. Skylab Houston, everybody around here has looked at the bird and it looks real good. Roger, roger. And uh, you're being awaited by the USS Ticonderoga. And uh, we're waiting to see you back here in Houston, too. All righty. You can relay to the Tyco. We've got their Fox Corpin and our hook is down. <laughs> I thought for a minute they were ordering a Mexican, but I, I thought it was a tacos, but I'm not so sure now. I'm, I have no idea. <laughs> no, no clue. I like the Roger Roger, though. Straight out of Star Wars. Excellent. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.